One of the greatest chapters, I believe, in the Old Testament is Isaiah 55, where God invites us to come. Isaiah chapter 55, we begin reading at verse 1. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend money for what is not bread, and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me. Listen that you may live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you, according to the faithful mercies shown to David. Behold, I have made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you will call a nation you do not know, and a nation which knows you not will run to you, because of the Lord your God, even the Holy One of Israel, for He has glorified you. Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. Let the wicked forsake His way and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return to the Lord, and He will have compassion on him. And to our God, for He will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there without watering the earth, and making it bare and sprout, and furnishing seed to the sower, and bread to the eater, so will my word be which goes forth from my mouth, it will not return to me empty, without accomplishing what I desire, and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. For you will go out with joy and be led forth with peace. The mountains and the hills will break forth into shouts of joy before you, and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn bush, the cypress will come up, and instead of the nettle, the myrtle will come up, and it will be a memorial to the Lord for an everlasting sign which will not be cut off. Father, these are words that you have given by the inspiration of your Spirit. We thank you, O God, for the invitation to come. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our daughter Anna did quite a, quite a job with training our, our dog Molly. And I think at one time she did a, like about 30 different uh, tricks uh, simple things like sitting and speaking and playing dead and waving and digging on the ground. And she can even scratch your back if you need a, a back scratch. If you've got a lot of moles, be careful though because those uh, claws can take a few moles off. As she prays, we thought being she is part of a, a Christian family, she needs to learn how to pray, which she does. And then she bows, too, after she does her, her, her tricks. But there is one thing that she doesn't always want to do. And anybody in my family knows exactly what I'm going to say. She doesn't always want to come. She kind of waits. She probably has us trained, too, because she kind of waits for a treat. She'll sit there and say, now, why should I come? Do you have something to offer me? Some food? And she'll wait until she hears maybe a, a bag rattling that has dog treats in it or some way, some incentive to come. 
People are like our dog in terms of God's invitation to come. And we find that beautiful invitation in Isaiah chapter 55 where God invites us to come. The invitation pictured here, I believe, is the invitation to come to Jesus. The invitation to salvation. And I believe there's two reasons why we ought to come today. First of all, the invitation to come to Jesus is too good to refuse. The first verse of our text gives us an interesting picture of this invitation. It is that of coming to the waters. And the picture is likely that of the seaport or the riverside where food and other commodities were being sold. And yet there's something very wonderful about this invitation to come. And if you notice right away in verse 1, it, it is a free invitation. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. You who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Now, if you're at all like me, you like to get a good deal on something, right? When you go shopping, I always look for the clearance rack and... And then go to Kohl's and you got an extra, you know, percentage off of that. And so we have kind of a friendly, I don't know, competition in our family. Who can get the best deal at Kohl's? And so when you do, you've got to take a picture of the receipt and you send it to the family and see who can, uh, who can get, get the best deal. The deal here is much better than that, isn't it? Without money and without cost means that it is absolutely free. And when it comes to our salvation, that is exactly how it works. It doesn't mean that our salvation didn't cost anything. It did. It cost Jesus His lifeblood. He gave the ultimate sacrifice to save us. But as far as we are concerned, it is given freely as a gift. I love Romans 6.23, The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. So why would anybody refuse something that is free? Why would you turn your back on the greatest offer that's ever been given? The free gift of eternal life. Too good to refuse. It's, it's freely given. Notice verse 2 says it satisfies. We're asked this question in verse 2. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? You know, the vast majority of people in the world today are chasing after things that do not satisfy. They've fallen for the lie that if you wear the right deodorant, buy the right phone, drive the right car, wear the right clothes, you are going to be satisfied. And our media bombards us with advertisements everywhere you look. If you just get this thing or that thing, it is going to satisfy. It is going to be joyful and wonderful and you're just going to love life. But you know what? It never works. You get the thing that you think is going to satisfy and it might give you some temporary joy and then what's the next thing? What's the next phone? What's the next car? Huh? It never satisfies. Remember, as a child, I wanted this baseball glove, and when I got the glove, I thought, you know, that was going to satisfy. Then my friend got a glove that was better than mine, and I wanted his. <laughs> it just doesn't work, does it? And yet people are striving and straining after all these things they think is going to give them joy. It never lasts. 
It never does. If you want something that really satisfies, God is the only one who can give it. And notice how he pictures it then in verse 2. He says, listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. So why would you turn away from that which satisfies? Freely given, truly satisfies the deep longing in the soul only Jesus can satisfy. It's also everlasting. So many of the things that we chase after give us a temporary joy at best, but the joy that Jesus gives is lasting joy. It is eternal joy because it is based upon God's eternal covenant. Look at verse 3, where where the writer says, Incline your ear and come to me. Listen that you may live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you according to the faithful mercies shown to David. The reference here to David reminds us of the covenant that God had established with him in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 16, where he promised David that his kingdom would endure forever, that there would always someone be on the throne of, of David. And nothing could stop that promise because that promise, we know, was fulfilled in Jesus. And Paul quotes this verse in his sermon in Antioch, in Acts chapter 13, verse 34, and he ties this promise to the resurrection of Jesus. Listen to what Paul says. As for the fact that he raised him up from the dead, no longer to return to decay, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. So because Jesus died and rose again, because He defeated death, He gives us the promise of eternal life. Not just joy now, but joy everlasting. Joy that will never end. I think of the hymn, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, will no less days to sing His praise than when we first begun. It's hard to comprehend eternal, isn't it? The day begins, the day ends. The week begins, the week ends. Life begins, life ends. Everything has a beginning and an end. But eternal life is ongoing forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. I can't really wrap my mind around that, but that's the promise of God. Why would you turn your back on everlasting life? Living relationship with Jesus for all eternity. Well, maybe you're thinking, well, that sounds wonderful. But I don't think that invitation is for me. I'm not worthy of such a gift as that. And in a sense, we can say, yeah, that's right. We are not worthy of that gift. But I want you to notice the word everyone that starts this passage. Whole everyone who thirsts come to the waters. Everyone, that includes you and me. And it's not just Jews, but it's Jews and Gentiles. Because look at verses 4 and 5. Behold, I have made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you will call a nation you do not know, and a nation which knows you not will run to you because of the Lord your God, even the Holy One of Israel. That's speaking of Gentiles. And we are Gentiles, right? And the gospel is offered freely to both Jew and Gentile. 
And so I ask you this morning, have you received that invitation that is too good to refuse? Have you come? Are you going to be like our dog, refusing to come? Jesus said, come. Come unto me, all you who labor, heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So there's the first reason. Come to Jesus, it's too good to refuse. The second reason is quite important as well. The invitation to come to Jesus is too urgent to delay. If you think that you have all the time in the world to come to Jesus, then you need to look at the warning that is given in verse 6. Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. You know, some people seem to think that they will be able to come to Jesus any time they want. They just need to somehow, someday decide when to choose Jesus. But verse 6 is really like a, like a flashing red light in the midst of this wonderful gospel chapter. Because it says there will be a time when Jesus will not be found. There will be a time when He is not near. And that's why the warning is given to seek the Lord while He may be found. Call on Him. While he is near, there will come a day when Jesus will not be found. For some people, this will come when the day they die. Because Hebrews 9.27 says, It is appointed unto men once to die, and after that, the judgment. And I believe there are many people who will be judged in hell for all eternity, and they never intended to be there. They knew the gospel. They knew what Christ had done. They knew they were sinners in need of a Savior. But not today. I've got time. I can wait. I'll come another day. I've got things I want to do now. I've got a life to live. And then when I'm getting old, I'll, I'll come to Jesus and life is gone. Just like that. For some people, it will be too late when Jesus comes again. The picture given in, in Luke chapter 13 is those will be standing at the door knocking. But the door has been closed. And they'll say, Lord, didn't we eat with you? And didn't we visit with you in our streets? And I never knew you. Too late. For others, it will be too late when they have hardened their hearts to the point where they have sinned away their day of grace. Where the Word of God no longer moves them. The Gospel no longer stirs them. There can come that time when God gives men over to their own sinful choices. And it's too late to come. And that's why God's Word is very clear. 2 Corinthians 6, 2 says, Behold, now is the day of salvation. Hebrews 3 says, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. That can happen when people sit in a Bible-believing church and they hear the Gospel over and over and over again and they continue to harden their hearts. No longer stirred by the Word of God. Why would people delay in coming to Jesus? What is it that prevents them from seeking the Lord while He may be found? 
In order to answer that question, maybe we need to ask another question. What does it mean to seek the Lord? What does it really mean to seek the Lord? Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call on Him while He is near. The question is answered in verse 7. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return to the Lord. That's what it means to seek the Lord. It means to forsake our evil ways. It means to turn away from our evil thoughts. It means to return to the Lord. And basically, what is that? That is repentance, right? That's what repentance is all about. You're headed one direction and you realize you're headed down the wrong road and you turn around you come to Jesus. That's what repentance is. And that's why many people don't seek the Lord. They're too comfortable in their sin. They don't want to turn away from it. They think it's too much fun. To become a Christian, I won't have any fun anymore. How many times have you heard people say that? Ray Ortland says, we can't just make a decision for Christ and leave it at that. We can't join a certain church because it won't challenge our selfish lifestyle and think that that's Christianity. And he says, being nice, harmless, church-going people with no repentance, no submission, no forsaking of self, no pursuit of Christ. That is not at all what God has in mind for us. What God does have in mind for us is to turn from our sin that we might experience His forgiveness. Notice the promise to those who repent in verse 7. Let the wicked forsake his way, the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord. And what's the promise? And he will have compassion on him. And I love that last phrase, for he will abundantly pardon. Isn't that good? Romans 5.20 says, Where sin abounded, grace abounded more. What a wonderful promise. You know, when we've been deeply convicted of our sin, it's sometimes hard to accept God's pardon. We look at our sin and we wonder, how how can God forgive me? Look what I've done. Look what I've said. Look at my thought life. Look at my sinful nature. How could God ever forgive me? That was something my grandfather really struggled with for a long time. Kept him awake at night paced back and forth in his bedroom under such deep conviction of sin. My grandma told him, Isaac, take an aspirin, take an aspirin and go to bed. He said, I, he said, I, got, soul, I got soul sickness, he said. And the night he got saved, he asked a couple of Swedish lay pastors, is there any hope for me? Any hope for me? And he said, Isaac, there's hope for you because of Jesus. Jesus took all of that sin, laid it on Himself, brought it to the cross. And my grandfather experienced what this chapter speaks about, abundantly pardoned, compassion from God, His mercy and His grace that that offers forgiveness. So how does God do that if we're spiritually dead, if we have hearts that uh, seek after things other than, than Him? Uh, this chapter answers that question too. 
God does that through His Word. Notice the description of God's Word. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so will My Word be which goes forth from my mouth, it will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I have sent it. What's the lesson here? The lesson is that God's Word is is life-giving, life-sustaining. God's Word is powerful. God's Word can change that sinful heart that wants to run from Him and bring life and forgiveness and salvation. I love how Luther puts it in the meaning to the third article of the Creed. He says, I cannot by my own reason or strength believe in Jesus Christ nor come to Him. Why? I'm spiritually dead. But he goes on to say, the Holy Spirit calls me through the Gospel. The Gospel is life-giving, life-changing. And when we embrace the good news that Jesus Christ has paid the price for all of our sins, that's when we experience everlasting life and joy and satisfaction that this chapter speaks of. And I love the description then of what happens when God's Word does its work in our lives. Verse 12, For you will go out with joy and be led forth with peace. The mountains and the hills will break forth into shouts of joy before you. The trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn bush, the cypress will come up. It will be a memorial to the Lord for an everlasting sign which will not be cut off. There's a joy that comes when you know your sins are forgiven, isn't there? A joy to know that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. A joy to know that when you leave this world, you'll be ushered into the presence of Jesus. What greater joy could there be than that? huh? What a beautiful joy. You know, I've read these last two verses many times. And I've kind of looked at it more in a symbolical way, that it pictures the joy of forgiveness and so forth. But I've wondered... Could there be, in a sense, a literal fulfillment in that as well? That that all of creation is changed because of Jesus? What happened when Adam and Eve sinned? There were thorns and thistles. There was suffering. There was death because all of creation was affected by man's sin, right? But now Jesus has conquered sin and death. And one day when He comes again, there's going to be a change not just for us, but all of creation. Think of what Paul writes in in Romans chapter 8. Listen to these verses. Verse 19, he says, For the creation, or excuse me, for the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. 
So just as our sin brought bondage and death to creation, our redemption will bring freedom. And that's how powerful the Gospel is. It not just saves us, but it changes all of creation. All of that will be renewed one day because of what Christ has done. So what is your response to God's invitation today? Did you notice how many times we see the word come in this text? Verse 1, come to the waters, come by and eat, come by wine and milk without money and without cost. Verse 3, invite, incline your ear and come to me. Jesus invites you to come. What a beautiful word. Isn't that a wonderful word? Come. In Matthew 11, when Jesus says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, I picture him standing there with arms wide open. Come to me. Jesus invites you to come. The invitation is too good to refuse. It's too urgent to delay. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Today, if you hear His voice, don't harden your hearts. Come. There's forgiveness and joy and peace in Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, thank You for Your Word that comes down like rain and snow, that produces life and fruit, salvation and joy. Lord, I pray that we would recognize today that there will come a time when you will not be found, and so we need to seek you today, call upon you today, embrace the good news today because of what you did for us on that cross. Lord, we come to your table this morning, respond to that invitation to be reminded of the great sacrifice that you paid for us to take part in your supper, your sacrifice. Lord, thank you for all that you've done for us. We pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.